0: Pressured. Hi, this is Mike Levin, and this is Podcast from the Swamp. I'm here with Bruce Eckel, and it is August 7th, Sunday at about noon, and Bruce is in Crested Butte, Colorado, and I'm in the swamp in... Gainesville, Florida. Hey, Bruce, how are you doing? Pretty good.
1: So you're not technically here with me. It's just that we're hoping that the, the sound quality is good enough that it sounds like you're here with me.
0: Yeah, we're very high-tech. We're using Skype and Hot Recorder. And at your suggestion, we're using Plantronics DSP500 headsets. So this is this is high-tech stuff. Should be better than before. Now um,
1: I'm hearing a little breathing on your microphone. Maybe you should move it down a little. Adjust okay. it down. Okay. Okay. I don't know so if you're. Oh, so um, I think that's better. I don't know if you're hearing anything from me.
0: Nope. You sound fine. Okay. You okay. Sound fine. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, these I'm, these these headsets have been very impressive. I'm not sure what sort of DSP they're doing, but it seems like it cuts out any sound that isn't in the immediate vicinity of the microphone. So, But yeah. they've been very, and they're like 50 bucks if, if you go on to, um, uh, what is it, frugal. So anyway, I've been very impressed with them.
0: Yeah, so far so good. Well, mm-hmm. it's been a while since we've talked. Um, I think the last time we talked was October, November there was
1: There was snow involved.
0: There was snow involved. I believe there was. It was wasn't
1: wasn't there a little bit of snow on the tables or something?
0: That's right. We're sitting out yeah. in front of Camp Four Coffee, Crested Butte. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit chilly. And then your, uh, and then your computer busted. That's right. And
1: right. then yeah, so you had it. It limped along until you just replaced it recently. You told me.
0: Yeah, it definitely uh, didn't like uh, falling out of my backpack from my bicycle. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, right. Got to watch that.
0: Yep. So it's been a while. It's been a while and um, I guess if anyone wants to listen to that podcast they can probably the easiest way to find it is to go to your weblog and um, there's a link to it from your weblog now your weblog has gone through some transition mm-hmm yes
1: I've been experimenting with weblogging I suppose to some degree before it was uh, before the, the term came out um, I think I started publishing articles and I I haven't kept track, but for a while I was just making HTML pages and sticking them up on the web. And then I tried uh, various things, you know, adding feedback to mine, and then I went to Blogger because uh, it seemed like it would be easier. And for a while I was convinced that I needed needed to be able to email my weblog entries in because that would make it easier, I, right. I thought. How did that and work out? S- Well, you know, it's interesting because Blogger has a way to do that. Right. You can, you can poke around and find it. And I thought, aha, this will solve my problems. And I did it a little bit, but then I ended up just, as I wrote the things, you know, and maybe it's just the nature of the things that I've been writing, they are more article-like, and so I would tend to go over and over them, whereas I think maybe if you were doing something that was a little more off the cuff, that the email interface would be nicer if it was just, you know, if it was more casual and less um, polished. But I think I've been writing articles and books and things for so long that if I'm talking, I'm trying to focus, I mean, one of the things I think about my weblog entries is that I feel like, in my own experience, if I go to somebody's weblog, I'm interested in a particular topic that they're discussing and not, you know, what their cat is doing, you know, or or random stuff. I mean, you know, I'm not interested in the random stuff. I'm interested in in the, the, the pre-edited things. And so if I'm writing about, you know, most people are interested in, in what I'm writing about in terms of computer programming, so I try and stick to that subject. Exactly. And so, as a, and that sort of funnels things into less off-the-cuff thoughts and more articles, and more article-like things. So, in the upshot is that I tend to uh, edit them more, and so I tend to use the the web interface and check it out, and you know, make sure it reads well, and rewrite and a few things here and there. I mean, it's still not as highly polished as, say, the book or. When I used to write magazine articles, but it's um, it, anyway, I I didn't use the email interface, and it's funny. I've had this experience a lot where I come up with an idea, and I'm absolutely convinced that oh yeah, this is the right way to do it. And when I finally, if I ever get around to doing the experiment, I usually discover that there's that my assumption there's something wrong with my assumption, and that you know, maybe, you know, maybe it needs to be modified or. Uh, adapted or something but the initial thought that i'm so sure
0: that uh that, oh, this would be the good solution never quite works out that way which i find fascinating well what i found fascinating was that when you began blogging instead of jumping on the bandwagon of some uh you know custom off the shelf software you wrote your own um uh, well you wrote your own parser that produced the rss feed and oh yeah figured out this RSS stuff. Uh, I, I believe you use Python. I think we talked about this a little bit before.
1: We did. It was under Zope. I mean, I wrote a Python, piece of Python code within Zope, and then uh, discovered the various problems with it, because it was getting way too many hits, and I mean, it was sucking up huge amounts of bandwidth, because people were hammering on it with their RSS readers, and so um, that was interesting, but it was in the end easier to to let somebody else solve that problem. It was a distraction from from weblogging. Right, right. Actually, setting up—I mean, when I originally did it on my site, setting the whole thing up—it um, the whole that became a distraction from weblogging, and so it made me resist writing pieces. Right. Even though some of them, you know, turned out to be just fine, but they always ended up being uh,
0: less spontaneous, I think. So in the meantime, your blog has landed at Artema. Mm-hmm. So Artema. Artema. So if mm-hmm. people want to find it, what's the URL?
1: Um, well, I couldn't give you, I mean, it's artema.com okay. is, um, is the main site. This is Bill Viner's. blog. Um, programming website where he's gotten a lot of uh, folks to do things like weblogging. I mean, that's where, uh, for example, Guido Van Rossum, who created the Python language, has a weblog there and and a number of other, you know, fairly interesting folks. And Bill has gone to a fair amount of effort to to improve the experience for, for people, including, to prevent blog spam and trolling and that kind of thing, so um, that actually was probably one of the most compelling things about it is that he filters the well. He doesn't he doesn't filter all the feedback by hand, but he has ways to. Kind of maintain the quality of the feedback, which I discovered was, it, I mean, it's interesting because you start out thinking, well, here's what blogging is about, and then you, as you, um, as you evolve, you realize, oh well, you know, this aspect is actually really important, and the feedback is is really what I think it ended up being kind of important. It's like you want quality feedback to, for, from your articles and. Um, the the uh, blog spot didn't really have any filtering mechanism in there and so you would get all kinds of noise right and right. and problematic folks and it, it just you know so it was interesting when you when you see what the real value of it and so far bill has done a good job of of um, kind of keeping you know keeping just enough control over it so that um, people tend to in general,
0: be fairly civilized, which well, I like. He's created quite a community there, so it's, it's, there's some very yeah. interesting stuff.
1: No, it's been a big challenge for him. He's, yeah. he's uh, and In fact, he's been in the midst, I don't know if it, he's actually done it yet, but he's set out, uh, I don't know, probably six months or so ago to, to rewrite the whole system. Oh, boy. Yeah, rebuild it from scratch, because... I mean, it's interesting because he kind of did the beta experiment of uh, using somebody else's software and uh, building on top of that, and then at some point he discovered that, you know, it's probably going to be easier if we build it ourselves from scratch so that, uh, you know, we have control over it and we understand it all and makes it easier to make changes, so.
0: Right. So so in the meantime... um, you're on you're on Artima now, mm-hmm. and um, I believe you've just finished a Objects and Patterns Seminar, or at least recently. Oh, well, actually, that was in, I think that was June. Oh,
1: gosh. So, yeah, probably a month and a half ago. Yes, it wasn't the Objects and Patterns. It was the Thinking and Patterns Seminar. Okay. So that's based on, well, roughly some of the stuff that you can download in the book. I've continued to evolve the material um So, uh, mostly in the slides, so it 's not really, it 's not reflected in the book. The book is kind of on hiatus for a while until until I guess I polish everything out. The other thing that 's been happening is a lot of the design patterns in the fourth edition of thinking in java i 've ended up incorporating a lot of design patterns, you know, certainly not all the patterns in the gang of four but it's ended up ended up being kind of a surprising number of them, and so the book has really been evolving
0: in that way. Oh, so you're you're injecting these design patterns in the chapters that discuss the fundamental Java 1.5 features?
1: Basically, not 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 in any particular place. It's just wherever they come up. It's ah. um
0: it's just there are
1: places. I guess I've been studying patterns for long enough that um you know I. I have more of an intuitive understanding of, I'll say most of them, because each pattern takes kind of its own evolution to for you to get the aha and understand it. But it's happened a lot. But I mean, I even I've even added things like flyweight, wow. in which I never thought I would find. Uh, it's, it, it, that one's been a particular particularly difficult one to find a good example of, but it just sort of came up. And that was actually in the containers in depth chapter. It was it was a, an example that, uh, well, a little utility or several little utilities that um, automatically populate containers okay. with um with data okay. and the utility itself, I discovered oh I could I could do something clever here and uh, it ended up being a flyweight. So that's an example. I mean that's just how things have happened. And then you discover I mean once you get a fairly intuitive understanding of like um, uh, gosh well adapter is in there mm-hmm. um, once or twice at least uh, actually several times the adapter is in there um, strategy. I mean, that's that's really a fundamental one. Strategy and template method, both of those come up in, in a number of places. And so, especially the more common ones, and it's just, I don't know, I, I guess, the, the, and it just happened, and I realized, oh, well, this is, this is good. It's not, you know, not all the design patterns have to be that complicated to understand, and it was appropriate to introduce them and uh, that's you know a lot of people really want to understand them, and it doesn't it doesn't really hurt even for the people who you know don't think that they're ready to to see this example and for me to say oh by the way this is a template method design pattern you know yes yeah. I
0: would I would have used that code anyway. So the seminar uh, went well. Yeah
1: yeah it did it did well we videotaped it that was that was one of the different different things about it is that. Um, a year ago, when Bill and I did the um, designing objects and systems seminar, we videotaped that. My, um, let's see. I don't know if I've got a, 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 an appropriate name for him. He's he's kind of more than an assistant. But anyway, uh, Jamie King has been working with me, and he said, "Hey, how about if I?" He, he wanted to come to the seminar, and then he said, well, how about if I bring my video camera and we try videotaping it and, you know, see what happens. And so we, throughout the past year, it's taken a long time for that one because we had to explore the different software and, you know, there he, he had a microphone on t- built into the camera, and so the quality wasn't very, terribly good, and so we had to figure out how to filter the sound and... Um, improve it and and take the slide material and incorporate it and just lots and lots of things that we had to do. So we learned a great deal from that. And Jamie said, "Hey, you're doing this other seminar. How about if we videotape that? But this time we'll work. We'll, you know, from what we learned from the first one, we'll try and improve our chances. Um, I mean, and the first one's okay, but we had to do a lot of work on it to make it." Um, sound good and look good, and you know a lot of processing. Well, whereas with the second one, we we were able to say, okay, we need we know we need all the slides so that they'll come out you know one on a page and there'll be no scrolling, and, and we also know that we need a really good sound system. So went out and bought a, a wireless device for sound, and also big deal bought a new. Video recorder, uh, HD TV. It was. It's basically a low-end professional rig, and um, so the quality was so much better that we didn't have to do any sound filtering, and he could
0: he could produce it
1: much much faster. And so well, I
0: imagine it would be it would be a bit of a challenge because as I remember, you know, I've been to a couple of your patterns workshops. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you do is you begin by. Introducing the Gang of Four to people who don't know... This was not Patterns. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It was the Patterns. I, I was thinking you were
1: thinking of the Objects and Systems. Yes, you're right. This was the Patterns. Yeah,
0: yeah the, the Patterns seminar. So you, you, mm-hmm. you introduced the Gang of Four, and mm-hmm. you know there were people there who had worked with that uh, Patterns book for years, and then there were people like me a few years ago who had just picked it up at, at your uh, suggestion. Mm-hmm. So you went through the Patterns, then we broke up into groups, and then uh each of the groups picked patterns that they felt comfortable with. oh no no, that was that that was that one workshop that
1: you came to that was when I was kind of experimenting with okay you know are there different ways that we can do these things that would be more casual and that we that that only happened once the okay. thing that, that that you came to was just um, that was a total experiment and it was very interesting but yeah. it was, um, I have not repeated that since. So um, the normal patterns seminar, we do pair programming, and I have a very structured sequence of exercises. I see. And so um, basically, and, and I discovered this over time, you give people a little bit, and then we do an exercise to kind of work that into their consciousness. And so with patterns, it's very nice because you can say, all right, Let's look at a pattern. Now let's do an exercise, one or more exercises based on that pattern. Mm-hmm. And by using pair programming, people don't get stuck. Right. That that works very well. Right. Okay. And so people
0: will um, people help each other
1: and um, and we move forward well. And also people get to know each other very well during the seminars. Which oh, I
0: is, know. I've kept up with which the, is nice. the folks I've met there, and I also became very you know familiar with various patterns that we experimented with, mm-hmm. like the builder pattern, that sort of thing. Right.
1: Exactly yeah. right. It's, you know, it, it's like once you get the exposure, it's it's almost like when you learn a new word. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at Gerald Weinberg's writing workshop. Um, I think it was at the end of May, right before coming up here, and I learned the word perseverate, mm-hmm. which if you haven't learned, you should look that one up. But um, it, but it was you know I'd never heard it before in my life. And then uh, a couple of friends of mine, I, I brought the word up. And they go, oh, that's a great word. You know, so, so it, you know, it's like you've had that experience where you, you you learn something new and then
0: you see it over and over again all of a sudden. So. Oh, you can't leave me hanging. What does it mean?
1: Perseverate means, it means when you kind of go around and around in your head with something, you know, and, and you're, it's like you're you're fighting in your head about a particular topic. You say, "Well, I could do this, but if I did that, and then this happened, and that would make that not work." And so, I, and then you come back to the beginning and you try again. And it's like it's 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 basically you're stuck in a brain loop. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, you, you see when it happens to people, they, they they run a little rut in their head. So
0: anyway. So You um, videotape the patterns workshop. Yeah, and, and
1: Jamie was actually able to blast through this one. I have a couple of pickups that I have to do um, for things that I added that we didn't that we didn't actually um, uh, we didn't record at the time. So I have to I have to do a couple of pickups, but then we'll just incorporate those in and it'll be ready. Actually, both. The videos will probably be ready at roughly the same time. We still have, we have to figure out things like okay, we need a clip, a, a reasonable size clip that people can download and look at, so that they know what they're getting before they buy it. Right. It's always a good thing, and um, you know, a couple of things like that, um, building the the, the, the web page for the for selling it and that kind of thing. So, which. Um, I'll either have to fit in in the midst of the book project, or maybe it's possible that I'll end up waiting until the book is done. It's really hard for me to do more than one computer project like this at the same time. I yeah.
0: don't a the time book project. That. Oh, so you're writing a book. Well, I have been for the last year and a half, so, <laughs> so and it's not, it's
1: not it's like not I'm going writing a book. I'm i I'm rewriting that same book for the fourth time. So this is Thinking in Java. Yeah, the fourth edition of Thinking in Java, yeah. And it's and it's gonna be a year and a half or more that it will have been this is the only thing I've been working on. Which is a little frustrating because, you know, it's it's a huge book. I mean, I have to cut it down to 1,400 pages, so it's giant. And you know, that's probably three or four other books. And so, but it, it is a little frustrating because other people can put out a brand new book or two in the amount of time that it's taken me to to rewrite
0: this one. So but your books are a little different, and I think that's what, mm-hmm. what what sets you apart. Number one, your books are available free on the web, and that's how I. Uh, acquainted with you and I've you know I just love this story but I can remember uh, I guess ten or ten or fifteen years ago I was uh, transitioning from C to C++ and really having a hard time and hey you know fifty bucks for a book is is uh, a lot and I found thinking in C++ on the web and not only was it uh, freely available at uh, mindview.net but it was a really good book really good reference and it helped me a lot and uh, wound up meeting you in person at the uh, Software Development Seminar in San Francisco in '95 when Java first came out. And you gave a little talk. Well, I thought it was going to be a half an hour or an hour on Java. But it wound up being an afternoon session on all of Java. And, uh, and I guess Which that's we could cover in an afternoon at that time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's when Thinking in Java, I guess, was born. That was the beginning of it. So, at this stage, ten years later, ten plus years later, you're working on Thinking in Java fourth edition, and incorporating, I guess, the the Java five features. Oh yeah. And wrapping in the patterns too. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, like I say, that just that just kind of happened. But the the Java five features is are, that's really what's made it take so long because, particular, the generics and one thing that people haven't necessarily been aware of, is that concurrency, the multi-threading stuff has changed mm-hmm. in a very big way, mm-hmm. and so it's it's really that that library has, you know, in effect been completely modified, and so uh, that's that's taking a lot of time. In fact, I'm coming up on those as the last two chapters. Of course, generics are scattered throughout the book in terms of usage, but the chapter that you know, really dives in and explains them—that's that's a tough one. And I've actually spent many months on it already. So there's a bunch of material there, but it's just not in—you um, know—it's not in finished shape. And there are still concepts that I need to be able to express more clearly, et cetera. So that's why I'm figuring in a couple more months. From the time that I finish the the containers chapter, which I
0: hope is in the next few days here, well, so I think you know if I had any suggestion to make, I would say keep mm-hmm. up the good work on the index because your mm-hmm. books to me serve two purposes: they're a reference and they're a tutorial. You know, it's nice to read a chapter on collections and learn all about collections and spend a day or two on it. It's also nice when confronted with a problem to be able to look up you know, mm-hmm. what's a list or a map or a set in the index and say, oh, okay, I'm going to go to page 456, and that's what a set is. Yeah. You know. Well, I,
1: I do, I mean, part of the process of each chapter is I make multiple passes through the chapter, and then when I think that it's actually written, I do I do kind of a final pass, what I think of as a final pass through it, and usually find a few um, issues to repair there, and, and then after that, I, I, I mean, I check the exercises, et cetera, and then do an indexing pass. So I, so I turn on the, um, so you can actually see the indexing tags, and then I go through and I make, the re- make sure everything is appropriately indexed for that chapter. And then, when the book is effectively done, then I go through the index itself and I review that and make sure that everything is organized appropriately. And um, then you go back and change the index tags if if something is inappropriate. So I do spend a fair amount of time on the index.
0: Well, another thing I think worth mentioning is that your book compiles. You know, your book is Mm -hmm. a a complete uh, code project. And, you know, I think many people might not realize that very often... Or maybe I should say occasionally what you what you read in technical uh, books has little mistakes in it. I mean, in my in my uh, experience, that's been a huge holdup because you read a book and you try to do the hands-on work and it doesn't work.
1: And right, and then at that point you don't know whether this
0: is. You know, I mean, you don't know where
1: the bug has snuck in. You don't know if it's something that you know maybe some editor has uh, unknowingly incorporated. Or you don't know if maybe, I mean, there, there are plenty of books out there where the writer was just in a hurry, right. so they didn't actually test it, and so they made a mistake on it. I mean, I've I've had to review books, or uh, sometimes in the past I've done technical reviews on them, and I've found all kinds of conceptual errors, and... It's it's the money thing. Publishers want to push the books out, and, and the person who's writing them looks at the amount of time versus the advance, et cetera, that they're getting, and they're going, well, you know, I'm going to run out of money if I don't rush through this thing. And so that's what happens. And it's too bad, but, you know, I understand the
0: pressures that make it occur. It's just unfortunate that it happens. Well, because your instinct is, hey, the the printed word is gospel, and that should work. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, unless you spend time working with the printed word, um,
1: in any amount of time you, you begin to realize, yeah, it's, uh, the fact that it's in the book doesn't help. But that's what I want. I want to be able to produce something that, and in in this version, this is one of the struggles that I've had for many years was um, people would say, you know, I'd really like to see the output from the program, and I'd go, yeah, I'd like to put that in there, but as soon as I do that, then um, if I change the program, which I want to be able to do, then probably the output is going to get out of sync and it's going to be incorrect. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't put the output in. But this time, I finally figured out a reliable and reasonable way to insert the output in so that it could be verified. So I actually have a Python program called Verify, and it's part of the, the code distribution. So you can type ant-verify, uh-huh. and what it'll do is it'll run the build, and uh, I think it actually runs and executes all the programs first, and then it goes through with the Python verification program and captures the output and compares it to the output that's in comment form to make sure that that's correct. So, so that way what's in the book actually has the
0: code, it has the output,
1: and that output is is basically guaranteed to be correct.
0: And we always touch on this, but you actually write your code snippets and programs uh, your working code in Python. Um, oh, awesome. you mean you
1: mean my utilities when yeah. I want to do these sorts of things? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's it's an easier tool to use for,
0: for things like that. So, just... Well, let me ask you, you know, when, when people are doing projects these days, I know you've been doing some consulting, the mm-hmm. question always comes up, what do we use? Java? Oh, you know, Java's interpreted. How about C++? Oh, well, there's this and that, uh, memory problems. What about Python? So. Mm-hmm. What, what are some rules of thumb that, that you suggest? Well, I mean, there's always, issue, th- there's always issues and trade-offs
1: with every language. So um, I think C++ is moving towards being a language that you use for portions of a solution rather than building the entire solution in it. Um, that's just my opinion. In other words, for say lower level driver things mm-hmm. or maybe we've got a piece of our system that isn't running fast enough mm-hmm. and the, so we'd we'd like to 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 optimize it a bit. and so we might write a section in Python. I mean sorry in in C++. Um, I mean C++ is it's definitely got some benefits to it. Um, but it tends to be very static, and so when you want to start doing more dynamic things, I and mean, one of the reasons that Java is p- very popular as a web server language is that it's significantly more dynamic than C++ is. I mean, okay. uh, like, you know, you can do things like reflection and, uh, and dynamic loading of classes and, and that sort of thing. So it, it improves, I mean, it gives you a lot more options, and, uh, and also there are things that most people's experience, I think, has, has been moving from C++ to Java. Their productivity is about doubled. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that you have, um, I mean, your error reporting mechanism is uh, there is just one. In C++, you have multiple ways. You have the old C ways. You can use exceptions. But in Java, there's just one way. And in Python, it's the same way. There's just one way to report errors, and that's through exceptions. Mm-hmm. And the unification of the error reporting mechanism, I think, is really huge. Mm-hmm. And then you have the garbage collection issue, which says, um, you know, we don't really have to worry, spend so much time worrying about the memory leak issues. And, mm-hmm. and I think both of those things probably have the biggest productivity increase in um, in Java over C++. So there are reasons that you'd like to use Java. There are it's you know it's it's hard to say because there are a lot of political issues as well. I mean, if you have a company that has an infrastructure that understands Java, then to say, well, you should use C++ or you should use Python or, you know, some other language, um, that's not really that practical because the amount of investment that you have in a particular language um, can be, I mean, that, that's, that's part of your company's core competency. And to just say, oh, well, you should throw that away and use something else, you know, it doesn't always make sense. Right. Because you're talking about going up a big learning curve again and you have to look at the cash flow of the company. And one of the things that I've learned over time is that these these are not, uh, this is a systems decision. This is not a, a, a reductionist thing saying, well, Java is better than C++ or Python is better than either of them, so you should use that language. It isn't that easy because you have to look at it in a systems way. And the, the the core issue of systems thinking is that you can't change things in isolation; that that, that reductionism does not work mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're dealing with uh, a complex system. And so, so that you know, that's not really you know, maybe it's not even the right question to ask because it assumes that that that's the the first thing that we should consider when we're. Trying to figure out what to design. I mean, what you really want to do is look at well, what problem are we trying to solve, right. and does our current expertise cover that problem? And um, and if it doesn't, you know, is there a way to do it? You know, where can we get? I mean, in the end, what you're really looking for is do we have leverage here?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So can can we solve this problem in a way that we will have a business advantage. So y- you kind of have to look at all of those issues before you can make. A, and, and it's and it's harder. I mean, when you're when you're coming at it from a scientific standpoint, um, especially when you're looking at it from a reductionist standpoint, where you say, well, we'll just we'll just change one thing and we'll see what happens. Um, when you when you come from there, it's very difficult to deal with the complexity of a system's problem. Because you have unintended side effects when you make such a decision, and so at some point, you know you're 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 kind of relying on you're sort of looking at all the issues that you're able to look at, and then relying on intuition and luck, and seeing um, okay, if we make this decision, I think this will probably give us the biggest resulting advantage.
0: So in the meantime uh, you've you've done a bit of consulting. We've never talked about that. I know mm-hmm. you know you, you you mentioned to me a long time ago that you moved into training and seminars in an attempt to do more consulting because you like to do consulting. Mm-hmm. And and recently you've done uh a few consulting engagements and uh I know uh Gerald Weinberg has ha- had an impact some of his thinking has had an impact uh, can you talk a little bit if it's not? Uh, oh, know. I can
1: talk in general terms. Yeah, I was able to. I, one of the things that I find is that when I travel, it's the takeoff and landing that's the uh, the hard part, the, mm-hmm. the getting out the door, and then when I come back, uh, readjusting to normal life. So what I've discovered is that if I can stack up several, um, you know, consulting jobs or, or whatever it is that I'm going to do, consulting training, etc. If I can stack them all together so I'm kind of going from one to the other then once I'm traveling it's not that hard to just travel someplace else. Mm-hmm. But it is it is more difficult to say, okay, now I'm going to travel and do this work and then I'll come back. And It seems like regardless of um, how long I'm gone or whatever, it takes the same amount of time for reentry. So if I had three separate jobs, I would have, like, three separate weeks of, of reentry, whereas if I have three jobs that are stacked together, I only have one week of reentry. So it's actually a fairly efficient way of doing that. So this was uh, these were um, all kind of back east in the New York, uh, uh, for you know,
0: that area, and
1: then went in Chicago. And what was really interesting was that um, everybody is still trying to figure out how to do object design. Mm-hmm. And it all kind of comes down to that. And um, and when you look at it, you realize, yeah, you, you kind of forget. If you work with objects long enough, things start to make sense to how you should do it and what you should do. But but you sort of forget that, oh yeah, there's this big struggle. You can learn the technology. You can, you know, even you know it's very helpful to learn more than one programming language because you kind of see the compare and contrast. Oh here's how this language solves this problem and this language solves it in a different way. And it sort of makes the fundamental problem that you're trying to solve pop out. And so that's helpful. But still, when you get down to, I think this is the reason why design patterns, people find it so important, is because it's, I usually call it the calculus of object-oriented design, whereas the, um, you know, learning the language features is the algebra of object-oriented design. But but when you move to um, design patterns, you're learning more of the, why and wherefore, and ways to solve various different actual problems, and so it begins to make a little bit more sense to you. But the um, the shuffling around of these ideas and the reforming of them until you end up with a good design, that people have a lot of trouble with that, and a lot of the design methods are too complex mm-hmm. for our human brains, even though we as you know, whatever we are, computer scientists or, or you know, whatever you want to call us, um, we're used to thinking in terms of complex systems. When it comes to design, you can't, you can't rely on a complex system because your brain gets overwhelmed and you get lost. And so I began to come up with, on this trip and using various inputs that eventually will show up in a book, um, I began to to come up with a kind of a simpler way to think of object-oriented design and to, in in particular, to help people tackle the problem of object-oriented design without getting overwhelmed because, you know, you just watch people go off, in all sorts of dead-end directions and and get lost and end up taking too much time and uh, all kinds of things. And it's so easy to get fooled in, in, in this business. So so that's kind of what happened during that month for me. And, you know, if I, if I hadn't had the Java book hanging over my head, I probably would have jumped right in and started working more on that. Um, and eventually something
0: like that will show up. Well, it sounds to me like you've got a, a consulting pattern. Um, uh, is it uh, your preference to to engage in a project at the beginning or in the middle, or uh, to try to streamline things? Uh,
1: you know, I don't like to. Um, I, I don't know. Oh, I I, I've I've gotten to where I find people will c- communicate with me when they you know when the need strikes them and even though i have seen some very in the past some very problematic systems where i was called in when the thing was starting to crumble and fall which you would think well that's you know that's really too late to do anything and perhaps it was and it was very frustrating to see that to see how you know one thing led to another another and the people building this um, this very shaky on top of a shaky foundation they built a shaky building and the whole thing is starting to to fall down and you see that and you you say gee it's too bad that they didn't bring me in sooner and yet um, I think I was able to at least help people evaluate the situation which is what they needed and also for me to see how bad it could get that's something that i carried with me for a long time just the realization that you know one thing that, well this is this is one of gerald Weinberg's uh, maxims is uh, things are the way they are because they got that way one logical step at a time and that one logical step at a time thing you know you, it's really interesting to go in and you see you see something that okay it's a disaster and yet everybody in it still has some kind of belief that it's worth coming into work.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's, it's, it's just fascinating to see that because you realize how far things can go. And, and it wasn't that they set out and they said, let's build this house of cards that will blow down at the slightest breath. Nobody set out to do that everything happened one logical step at a time. You know, it made sense to put this card on top of that card and this card on top of that card, and pretty soon you got a house of cards. You didn't design, you didn't set out to build the house of cards, but that's what you got. So uh, so it's useful to see things at various different stages, and I mean, sometimes it requires a great deal of struggle. But, um, you know, that's that's actually kind of what, is interesting about consulting. That's, to me, what makes it consulting. It isn't just going in and reapplying something that I already know. It's actually trying to solve interesting problems that sort of just pop up and I have to think on my feet and, and in a sense, showing people how to think on your feet and how to attack a problem that you haven't seen before rather than coming in and saying, well, you know, this is the... This is how we do things because we're all we're we're already well prepared and we know the process for this. It's, I don't know. I mean, in my own brain, that's more training than it is consulting. Consulting is when you when you get the challenges of not knowing and having to think on your feet, and um, it's a little spooky at times, and yet it's very stimulating. So that's and. And whenever that comes up in a project is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the point where I think, you know, that's okay with me. However, I can help whenever the client is at the point where they think that they need my help, I'll come in and try and do something. And I feel like I usually can contribute something.
0: Well, software. Something, th- yes, go ahead. Uh, yeah, software development, I think, is going through uh, various changes now that uh, we can we can. Actually track. I've got a couple of uh, user groups here in in Florida. One's called Gator Jug, that's mm-hmm. gatorjug.org, and one's called Orlando Jug, orlandojug.org. And this month, and uh, I think October, we'll have talks on agile development. Uh, so we've you know we've moved far away from the the waterfall and spiral uh, methods, and and now we have. Uh, Scrums and and various you know software development techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, do you do you buy into any of that or uh? sure? Yeah,
1: well, all of that stuff made sense to me before it was formalized into XP and then the agile methods and and I think also that they've done a very good job of the the whole agile umbrella idea. I think was um, was so useful because. I mean, the the reason that we had the rational unified process is because we had these three different factions that were, you know, the the last time we had a battle over methodologies, um, everybody came up with their methodology and they were fighting against each other. And somebody saw early on, and I'm not even sure who it was, but anyway, somebody insightful saw early on and said, you know, that doesn't help anybody. Let's see if we can... um, you know, all move in the all paddle in the same direction, and so they came up with the the umbrella of the agile methods, and so you can be agile without uh, having to agree with everybody else's way of being agile, mm-hmm. and uh, and then it just removes the distraction of the of the infighting that we had with the, that produced the UML, mm-hmm. and um, you know, which we don't. You know, we don't really need that, and I think there was a lot of things that got lost and, and uh, sidelined in that previous battle. So, um, but, w- I mean, when I was working, there was a lot of, when I was working in, you know, regular companies, there was a lot of, of that, uh, you know, a lot of silliness that went on that was very frustrating because the bottom line is programmers want to be productive, you know, I think everybody wants to feel productive, but for some reason programmers, its maybe it's because they have this tool that they're supposed to use, and and they want to do that. And when you start having them go to meetings and you start, you know, telling them what their schedule should be and you start doing all these things that you can read about in PeopleWare or Extreme Programming Explained or, you know, the Scrum tool methods or, or any of these things, I think the value of the Agile methods is that they are looking at the world in more of a systems approach. Mm -hmm. They're saying, in particular, they're saying, hey, people are involved here, whereas a lot of the the structured methods weren't really paying much attention to the people. I mean, the only nod that they gave to the fact that people were there was that people had to understand the systems, and so it needed better documentation, and so it became a – um, and basically, the focus of the structured methods was: we need better documentation, and because that'll solve our problem. And then we discovered, no, it doesn't. And um, in the agile methods, they say it's about getting the teams working, a, a team working well, and. And enthusiastically, and that's where your strength is. Mm-hmm. And it's not a magic formula, but there are things that you can do to make it work better. And so now, because you know there there isn't the infighting, now the the various agile methods are free to explore. Okay, well, what are some of these things that can make teams work together? You know, with Scrum, you got stand up meetings and and the the actual daily communication meetings that only last for a few minutes, and everybody knows where everybody is, and then we get working. And um, you know, with Extreme Programming has its tools, and, you know, some of these others, Alistair Coburn has got his Clear, I think it's called Clear, or something like that. Anyway, so, on and on. But So, I think it is a big step forward because the focus is more on the people, and is more on programming as a human activity. Mm-hmm. So, so, yes, I buy into those things in, in a fairly big way, I think.
0: A little transition here, but uh, you mentioned to me that you've done some interviews, and uh, I'd like to, uh, to hear a little about that. Um, yeah, well, I, I
1: set out, and, and this was something I think Bill Venner's inspired, because he was, he, was, he was recording interviews with people, at various events and things, and then he would turn them into articles that he would put up on our And I thought, well, you know, this this predates podcasting, and so I could have been, uh, you know, I could, could have been real early into that. But I thought, well, you know, it seems like it would be, I, I like to listen to interviews with people. I mean, I think you get a lot out of that. So it would be interesting for me to go out and interview people when I'm on the road. And so I did this um, the one thing the one mistake that I made was that um, I didn't go to my lawyer first and say I need a release form and then hand the release form to the person before the interview there have been a few interviews where people have gotten really busy and plus you know I haven't been as persistent working on these other projects etc so the thing that's holding it up it's a, it's actually Almost done, but the thing that's holding it up is um, I've just got a couple of release forms that I haven't been able to get signed, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of um, snagged me a little bit. And um,
0: but basically, you've talked to what developers? You've talked to uh, language uh, uh, designers, writers, designers. Um, system.
1: Yeah, th- I mean, like I had an interview with Guido van Rossum, ah, and, okay. and also with uh, Jim Fulton, who created the Zope system, which mm-hmm. is pretty impressive, large system, um, and Tim Lister, who is a co-author of um, PeopleWare, mm-hmm. and, um, well, uh, Bill Benners, I've talked to him, the, the guy who created our team, and we talked about the challenges that he faced with, with that, and uh, I can't remember everybody I've interviewed at this point because that project has, has sort of been on the, sort of been on the shelf and I – anyway, you know, focusing on the Java book, I, I have discovered that it's hard for me to to focus on more than one project. I keep trying to get better at it, but um, it's a challenge.
0: Now, what have you learned like about it? working with teams? I mean, that's interesting with me because I've got a small business, Cambridge Web Design, mm-hmm. and it's mostly me doing the consulting. But occasionally I've got to ramp up and, and bring some people in. I know that you've tried, um, well, I volunteered and, and helped out on Thinking in Java, third edition on the collections chapter, and sometimes, you know, that helps, and sometimes that's more of a hold-up than it's worth. Uh, what What are you learning along the way about uh, ramping up and and uh, doling out tasks and still having your, your input? Well, I have a lot of books that talk about it. There's...
1: There's a – in fact, there's a book on – oh, yeah, here's a little, a cool little book called The Truth About Managing People. Mm-hmm. And uh, nice – I've read partway through that. Uh, so what is The Truth About Managing People? The Truth About Managing People probably is that it's really, really hard. And I suppose – I don't know. It, I, I think, again, this is one of these systems things that it's really about um, – People, <laughs> it's about people. So that includes the manager. In other words, I think that the manager has a kind of style or a, or a personality, basically, and that is going to fit with the people that they're trying to manage, or we could just say work with or lead. Or um, uh, There's another book that I've been going through a bit at a time, which is um, Gerald Weinberg's, um, becoming a Technical Leader, yeah. which is, and in fact, that's, that's where the insight about systems thinking came. Mm-hmm. And this is the book that he had. This is actually the basis of the Problem Solving Leadership Workshop that I took up here in Crested Butte oh, at least 10 years ago. Um, that was the first time that I had a interaction with, with him. And it, it was at Crested Butte, and I wasn't living here at the time. And so I said, oh, well, that's a good opportunity to go up to Crested Butte and take a, take a Weinberg seminar. And that was, that was a fascinating seminar because one of the most – everybody who took it, it he, they don't teach it anymore, but everybody who took the problem-solving leadership, they call it PSL, mm-hmm. remembers in particular the simulation of the company, and that was called VerseWorks. So because you were supposed to, to – your product was poems, and you had people down in the basement. They were mining letters, and they were trying to turn them into words. And then marketing, I think, was going to, you know, figure out what poems were selling. And You know, so you have – anyway, the idea was that it was a simulation of a company. What's – the most fascinating thing about this is these are all – Not just people who work in companies, but these are all people who are trying to do better by coming to this workshop. Most of them have been reading books on managing better and, and, you know, that kind of thing. So these are all folks who are head and shoulders above trying to do better than everyone else. And what was amazing is in the space of an afternoon, we had... Basically recreated the, and of course, uh, I have to say that the the people who are running the workshop are injecting little facts in new. Th- I mean, they would inject noise into your system. So, if if your system was starting to run too good, they would say, "Okay, now here's what we're going to do mm-hmm. to try and mess you up." But regardless of all that, with all these people trying more than their best to to make better companies we managed to in the space of uh, whatever three quarters of a day or even half a day reproduce the worst company you ever worked for i mean in our case we had some person who who quit in tears she didn't quit the whole workshop she quit our company mm-hmm. because whatever it had pushed some buttons that you know were were very valid for her you know it was just a simulation it was just a game but she got really mad and, and upset and quit that's how real it was wow. and and you know you look at the company and you're, you find yourself getting depressed because oh god all this stuff is just like you know some memory that i have so it's pushing buttons it was fascinating and you come away from that and you carry that thing around you for with around with you for years you don't understand it you don't go i mean you're you're asking the question it's like a, it's like an accident it's like when i crashed my mountain bike years ago i went over and over in my head what happened what happened you know you didn't know what happened the important thing was i think to realize how easy it is to to mess things up and how difficult it is to get things to work right and i think i'm moving towards um kind of phase 2 of this phase 1 was a train wreck i would say you mm-hmm. know i tried tried an internship program i tried working with people um definitely just uh a train wreck everywhere and then you come out of that going well, I'm not really sure I figured this all out, but at least I have a few, th- you know, ideas of, of maybe things that I I don't want to repeat, mm-hmm. and so it kind of comes down to you you have to have you have to work with people who have the same values that you do, right? And I would say in my case, when trying to produce um, material the kind of material that I produce, the accuracy is really important. I mean, it doesn't mean that I'm going to get everything accurate all the time, but um, I want to, you know, if I don't, I want to fix it. And there's a lot of pressure. I mean, so like if you're working on a book, the important thing is we want to make sure that everything is correct. And whether there's a deadline or whether you you know are in a hurry to get something out or or you're, you're busy, you're wanting to get on to something else, um, that doesn't justify putting something out that isn't high quality. Mm-hmm. So, um, so 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 that, that shared value, whatever your values are, you have to share that value. Um, I think in my case, the other thing is that um, I don't, I'm not particularly good at, um, I guess, managing people in the sense of riding herd on them in other Mm -hmm. words the person or people that i work with have to have i guess it's the same kind of you know i i'm a i'm what i suppose they call a self-starter somebody Mm who who goes and gets things done and makes sure that you know they happen and everything and so the kind of people i work with need to be some self-motivated that's the thing you know they have to be self-motivated and that's not always true i mean they're you know, you might be in a situation where your personality might be that you um, like a lot of interaction with people and you're completely fine with helping them figure out what the next step is. Mm-hmm. And so, it, again, it sort of depends, it's sort of a personality matching thing. So, yeah. I've discovered that that might be more critical than just about anything when you're talking about teamwork. Is that because if you run into a snag where You know, things aren't getting done the way you need them to be done or, you know, for whatever you promised the customer they would be done, et cetera. And you're having to somehow make that happen, and that's not really your personality, then you'll probably end up not not having a good time and not producing what you (laughs) need to produce.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm running across some some interesting phenomenons uh, in both the professional software development realm and in the volunteer realm. Uh, running uh, the Gainesville Java User Group, GatorJug.org, and the Orlando Jug, uh, I often ask for volunteers, especially website volunteers, and we've got a few brave souls who you know maintain the website month after month. And then we've got a few people. Very often they're people that are in between jobs. Uh, People that are uh, trying to improve their skills is another set. Um, And I'll I'll put a list of tasks that they might choose from, especially on the GatorJug.org website. Mm -hmm. Let them choose. And, uh, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes uh, it doesn't take much to to jumpstart the project, and other times it just never happens. Now, there is the money money factor. Well, (laughs) sure, because I assume they're
1: volunteering, right?
0: Right. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, see, volunteer work is a whole different thing because there is there is something going on there. There is an exchange. It's just not in money. It's right. in something else. And so you have to kind of be aware of that. I mean, I've, I've had um, connections with nonprofit organizations. And so when when people do volunteer work for that, they are getting something from that. Mm-hmm. And so you have to make sure that they're actually getting what it is that they need to get. From. And, and the problem is with volunteer work, it's often different from one person to another. The nice thing, in a sense, about um, for-profit companies is that you can – well, see, now that that's interesting because that doesn't really apply either – it's been shown that programmers would rather work for less money on a project that they would have more fun on mm-hmm. than more money for a project that's drudgery it, it's pretty universal and so so even in a for-profit organization the enjoyment aspect is probably more important than the money aspect i mean there has to be enough money to get by on but um people don't want to have they don't want to be dreading going into work
0: right so Interesting.
1: But with but when there is no money going in, then there has to be enough incentive and value for the person that they will um, follow through so yeah it's uh, I guess that's the thing about any kind of management or leadership is that it's there are there are a bazillion ways to fall off of the razor's edge
0: <laughs> right, so yeah, so in the meantime. Um, well, you know, I don't want to make this, uh, you know, too, too big uh, for the, the normal podcast. By the way, yes. if, uh, if uh, you know, we've just hit the one-hour mark here, mm-hmm. um, but the, uh, your website is mindview.net, M-I-N-D-V-I-E-W.net, and that's where yeah, you can, or, find you
1: can or you can go to bruceackle.com. That'll okay. work, too. Yeah,
0: either one. So that's mm-hmm. where you can find your books. That's where you can find your seminar schedule, your personal mm-hmm. schedule. Um, in case people want to. Uh, uh Actually,
1: my personal schedule isn't up there particularly. Okay. okay. I mean, there's All a right. few things that sometimes I'll put on the calendar, but um, but generally it's, uh, yeah. And, and if I'm traveling and, you know, if you happen to see that I'm traveling someplace that you are and you have a user group or something and you'd like me to speak to, usually I can arrange that.
0: Well, that would be great. We'd love to have you down here in the swamp. Well, yeah, <laughs> I haven't
1: I haven't been to Florida in many years, but I I was talking to the general listenership if right. they happen to see that I'm in um, if I'm in their area or happen to know that I'm and you and often I'll try and announce that um, more places than just the calendar.
0: Yeah, and what about international work? Are you uh, planning any? Uh, I know I've been to your 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 Prague seminar. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like um, there's a company
1: in uh, India that ah. it looks like I maybe we're, we're working on trying to to, to do something in December because I was told that's the good time weather-wise to be in India. So I might be giving a couple of seminars down there with this company, and um, we'll see. There's a lot of – this has been happening for – a number of years attempts to go to India that haven't worked out, but for some reason it seems like this company seems to be, um, you know, this one might work. So, so we'll for the see. brave
0: of heart, would it be possible? I mean, will will you let the public know about this, and can we come out? Um, with
1: it depends on this. This is something. This is an invitation by this company, and so whether it's going to be an open uh, forum or whether they have a limited set of clients my guess is that they'll probably sell tickets to it okay so now so I'm that's b- but i but i just don't know at this point we're still in the early stages of of uh, figuring all this out and they haven't they haven't said you know what it what it would be about
0: like okay. that man. easter so. eggs I, you know i don't know how many people realize that on uh, some of your uh, well at least on thinking in java third edition on the Uh, the attached CD. You've got some beautiful classical guitar music. Oh, the stuff that Chuck Allison did. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah. Well, we were experimenting with sound and we um, just, that was, where did we put that? Oh, I think we put that between the various lectures and um, yeah, that was, that was nice. I mean, Chuck plays classical guitar and he does it quite well. So and Chuck is your
0: your co-author. Chuck of, uh, was
1: a co-author for Thinking in C++ Volume Two. Right. And uh, he teaches at Utah Valley State College, and uh, he's uh, he is the editor of
0: the what is it called? Anyway, there's a C++, C++, C++ Users Journal, right? isn't it?
1: No, it used mm-hmm. to be. He for many years he was the editor of the C++ Users Journal, but then they started changing things around. And he is now he's he on the Artima website he has started a C++ um, journal I think it's called the C++ Source okay yeah so, so he's doing that and um, and uh, anyway, anyway yeah
0: that's and that's who's playing the music there okay yeah I've really enjoyed that um, and and the other thing I'm going to bug you just a little bit here um, when is Thinking in Java version or fourth edition going to hit the bookshelves?
1: Well, it's because I do it in a camera-ready form and manage the cover design and all that kind of stuff. Um, It tends to go pretty smoothly once I finish writing it. The the problem is, I mean, the the last two chapters are these big ones, these big complex ones, uh, generics and uh, concurrency. Mm -hmm. And so... um, they're a little bit open-ended, but my guess is a couple of months to the book being done, and then once it's actually done, it's it's really just a few weeks. I mean, usually it's been set up so it's just a few weeks from you know the, the finishing of the book to actually showing up on the shelf So and the
0: publisher continues to give you permission to uh, uh, make it a free download on the web. It's this one won't be. Ah, okay.
1: So, you know, but the others, all the previous editions will be, will remain on the website. Okay. So, and and probably we'll put up some kind of, um, you know, a few chapters or something mm -hmm. so that people can see what it's like and kind of get the idea of it. But the whole book, um, not this
0: time, no. And for the, uh, the folks who haven't been to your website, the other books, uh, the unfinished books such as Thinking in Patterns, Thinking in Enterprise, Java, I don't know if mm-hmm. that's wrapped into uh, into the Thinking in Java, um, Thinking in Python, mm-hmm. uh, what else? All in
1: some kind of crude form, yeah. <laughs> I mean, people seem to get value out of it, though.
0: So. Yeah, Yeah. well, I know I enjoy them, so they're up there as a, as a free download. So I guess since uh, you know we're risking a, a power outage here, we're getting the uh, some huge storm rolling in here in, in oh, Gainesville. Okay.
1: Well, that sounds like a good reason to to uh, finish our our uh, interview, and it's probably gone on long enough as well. Yeah. So, and
0: um, well, thank you very much. Uh, okay. You know, this is this is Mike Levin. I just talked with Bruce Eckel. This is Swampcast, a podcast from the Swamp. Uh, www.swampcast.com, and I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we encourage your feedback. Swampcast at cambridgeweb.ie is the email address. And, uh, Bruce, let's do this again real soon. Okay. Okay, bye-bye.
1: Bye.